for our industry, it's really important to be a good you know, community partner because Bitcoin has historically had kind of a negative connotation for people that are a little bit uneducated about how we do what we do and, and why. And so, you know, for, from our perspective, we want to always be focused on the end result. You know, we want to maximize efficiency. We want to maximize the, the workforce in the local communities and the opportunities for jobs and stabilizing the power grid because we do want to be that community partner for a long term. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Matt Schultz from CleanSpark. Matt, welcome. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, I want to jump right into Bitcoin mining and CleanSpark. Last week, CleanSpark announced it's buying 20,000 new S19J Pro Pluses. First, congrats on that. And, you know, I want to know from your perspective, what led to this decision and why did you guys go about, you know, acquiring 20,000 new, new rigs? Um, great question. Um, first of all, just kind of set a little bit of the foundation. We, um, we've been pretty strategic about our rig purchases. Um, we, we, ran, we started running models about a year ago last November when, you know, there, we were seeing billion dollar orders of, of like new XPs and, and whatnot coming in and, Rather than jump on the bandwagon, we instead instead chose to invest in infrastructure, um, with the you know kind of theory that with a billion dollars plus in new XPs at 140 uh, at 140 terahash um, processing rate, what that was going to do to global difficulty. And then we run some models. We use the Henry Hub, which is kind of the a distribution model for the southeastern U.S. dealing with natural gas. And although we operate in Georgia and it's predominantly nuclear, um, prices of natural gas impact electrical prices regardless. So what we did is is we, we looked at difficulty increasing with the large rig purchases. We looked at the volatility in Bitcoin price and the likelihood of an increase in energy costs. So instead of you know tying up capital three quarters in advance, we instead chose to um, be participants in the spot market and buy rigs at what we believed would be much lower prices and instead invest in infrastructure, buying facilities, um, immersion cooling equipment, et cetera. So you know, over the summer we picked up um, a couple thousand of the S19 XPs at the floor. I think it's the lowest price anybody's paid for scale. We paid about twenty nine fifty a terahash um, that were for another public miner that they just couldn't pay for them. And then you know we've continued to look for opportunities. And this new um, S19 J Pro Plus model, um, it's a hundred twenty two terahash unit, and we were able to get those for thirteen twenty five a terahash. So it was one of those kind of too good to pass up opportunities. It will add significantly to our hash rate, and they're a super efficient machine. Um, you know, I know you follow space really closely, but at at a twenty-five thousand dollar Bitcoin and five cent per kilowatt hour energy, if you were to buy a new XP today at the current you know market price of about thirty-five to thirty-eight dollars a terahash, it's a six hundred and seventy-day payback. These S nineteen J Pro Plus that we bought. Um, given those same 
kind of variables, $25,000 Bitcoin and five cent energy, they pay back in less than 300 days. So, you know, everything we do is, is, is kind of strategy over ideology. And that's, it's kind of the rationale behind why we did that. Nice. Yeah. I appreciate the background story. I think many people following the mining space definitely agree that CleanSpark navigated the, the bull and bear market exceptionally well. And yeah, that makes sense as to why you guys would be accumulating, you know, J Pro pluses at, at this time. Um, I think I think I saw in the the press release about fifteen thousand of the J Pro pluses plan to get plugged in in Washington, Georgia. And I know you also you just mentioned it, but you also have three other facilities in Georgia. So I'm in the Atlanta, Georgia area. So I'm curious, like, why has CleanSpark picked Georgia as a jurisdiction to deploy Bitcoin miners? Um. That's interesting to know. So my, uh, the CFO of our, or excuse me, the CEO of our company, Zach Bradford, and our chief communications officer, Isaac Holyoke, are actually in Atlanta this week. So after we wrap up here, remind me and I'll see if I can, I can connect you guys and get you a tour while they're there. Nice. Um, so why Georgia? Um, so CleanSpark kind of has its, its roots in the energy business. Um, we built microgrids, which is basically... Um, decentralized um, energy rather than, you know, decentralized finance. I guess it, it's kind of an interesting fit, but we would use um, renewable energy resources plus energy storage. And then we had a proprietary software platform that would enable us to make decisions if and when to buy power from the grid and if and when to sell power back to the grid. And so using that kind of energy DNA, we were we, we were tasked to provide a, a more energy efficient, efficient solution for a Bitcoin mining facility right there in College Park. And as, as we kind of started to dive into that, it was at, at the, the beginning of COVID. And, and what became really clear was it was a unique opportunity for us to use what we know best, and that is energy um, demand response, grid participation, all of that stuff. Um, and, and actually kind of walk the walk and talk the talk. And so rather than sell the, the end use customer, a microgrid solution, we actually bought their mining facility and Georgia is really unique. As you know, there's, there's a, a law that surrounds energy, um, the territorial act, and it includes a provision called customer's choice. And what that means is that you can basically select your utility. And so as we had our first deployment in Georgia, we got real familiar with MEAG, the Municipal Electrical Association of Georgia. Um, and then we also developed a relationship with Georgia Power, which is part of the Southern Company, and understand the differences and, and strengths and weaknesses of both. And we were able to use that customer choice provision to make strategic deployments of, of facilities in areas that we could leverage one or both of those utilities. So we love Georgia because with, with the, 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 um, the Vogel series of, of nuclear power plants that, you know, the citizens of the state of Georgia started financing 35, 40 years ago, and we're now only seeing the benefit. But what, what, we, what we've realized is that there's this excess capacity. So there's the ability to buy power from MEAG and the, the city becomes the utility. So by working with the cities, they make just a small margin on every kilowatt hour of power that we buy. So if you think about it, we, we really are partnered with the cities. And so by enabling the cities to make larger commitments to their energy purchase, we've 
enabled greater access to clean power. As an example, in the city of College Park, um, we have about 50 megawatts of capacity there. Um, and to put that in, in perspective, the airport, the largest airport in the world is about 30 megawatts. So we're, we're the biggest power customer of MEAG in the state of Georgia. And what our commitments to College Park have enabled them to do is to sunset coal-fired power plants that operate to fill um, peak demand, what they call peaker plants. They're, they, they're able to sunset those coal-fired power plants a full five years ahead of schedule. So by working with the cities, we create these relationships that are meaningful because it generates revenue for the city. It enables them to increase their purchase commitments with MEAG, which increases the exposure to clean energy, such as nuclear, and enables us, it gives us access to super favorable power rates. Um, you know, on our earnings call last week, or a couple of weeks ago, Zach mentioned that across all of our facilities, which are the four we own in Georgia, plus um, our, our co-location facility in New York, we were, we were seeing an average of about three cents a kilowatt hour, but he went a little further to say that in Georgia, during the week of our earnings call, we were paying about 1.8 cents per kilowatt hour for power, and it's, it's clean power. So by locating in Georgia, we found a really great partner in MEAG and in Georgia Power. Um, we, we buy a ton of electricity, and it directly benefits the small communities that we do business. So it's really kind of a win-win-win for us. Nice. Yeah, it's great to hear about Clean Spark success in Georgia. Um, I think that's fantastic and awesome for, for Clean Spark and the state of Georgia. Um, I kind of have a very broad question that you can take however you want. And you kind of touched on, on energy there just for a little bit. But how do you view the, the Bitcoin mining industry and the energy industry integrating, you know, over the next five to 10 years? So, you know, that's a that's a terrific question. That's actually really insightful. And and um, being an energy company, I'll tell you what really triggered the, the kind of aha moment for us um, as an energy company. We had a, a part of our team on the ground in South Africa, and they were working with the Minister of Energy to build community based microgrids for areas that had energy insecurity or energy poverty. And so we designed a series of microgrids that would include generation, wind and solar, um, energy storage, and then distribution at a community level. So it made sense because there were, there were villages that needed the power, there were people that were willing to pay. But what we found is even the World Bank wasn't willing to finance those developments because there wasn't one single large customer that would say, hey, I'll buy this power. So enter Bitcoin. You know, it's, it's the perfect interruptible load. And, you know, the last week of December in Georgia, when it was kind of a kind of a unicorn event where, you know, the temperatures were super cold and energy rates skyrocketed, we got the signal from the utilities to curtail power. So by curtailing, what happens is, you know, we, we entered into a period that we call active power management. So rather than expecting the community and the, the citizens to pay us to shut down, we have a different curtailment approach, and that is we, we use economics to decide when and when the city sees that increase in demand, we curtail, thereby increasing the supply. So kind of the long way around to answer your question is we see Bitcoin as really the, 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 a, a core driver and a catalyst to the new energy transition, because where else can you say, hey, I need somebody to buy all the power I'm making right now 
until we have sufficient demand to take it up. But there may be times that we need the power back. So I need you to be able to shut down your load in, in a, you know, a very short period of time. You know, in, in Georgia, we like to, we, we have about an hour window. So we can curtail very rapidly. And that way, the, the grid can reallocate those energy resources to areas that there's greater need. And so Bitcoin provides that flexibility. I mean, if you think about it, Joe, you, if, if, if we were to build a, an assembly line manufacturing cars or if we had a traditional data center um, hosting medical data or even selfies from a, a, you know, a big social media company, you can't just shut it off. And, and the cool thing about Bitcoin is the ASICs that we operate don't have memory. Um, and we use some really proprietary technologies or unique technologies, I should say, that enable us to use rather than go out and throw breakers and shut computers down. We can use a click of a mouse and curtail a 3000 watt machine down to 30 watts in a matter of seconds. So it's really all about efficiency and working together with the grid. And then by being that interruptible load that's a pretty flat load profile we can work with the utilities to give them the confidence to make a larger investment in solar wind or other renewables knowing that hey i'm here to buy it when it's for sale when it's when it makes sense for us but if 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 you need me to curtail i can do so in the blink of an eye so we really truly see bitcoin as as a key driver for the new energy transition nice that yeah it's it's fascinating to think about bitcoin mining and the energy industry. I guess going off of what you were just saying, you know, does it make sense that Bitcoin mining is kind of reducing volatility in power markets or energy markets? Would you agree with that or disagree? So I, th I think it's a function of the, the agreements that are in place. Um, you know, if, if you're part of a demand response program where the utility now has to measure the cost in order to pay you to curtail, it kind of changes those dynamics. We, you know, we try to have a little bit more holistic approach in that we want to be a true partner with the city. We don't want it to be punitive if, you know, if it's 30 degrees in Georgia and there's an ice storm, we don't want the citizens to have to step up and pay a big bill just so we can, you know, agree to curtail our power and not use it. So, so we like to use that active power management as a tool. So um, I definitely see that, you know, Bitcoin can stabilize the, the, the grid. I mean, my goodness, we're two years into the current administration and part of, part of Biden's um, election promises were that he was going to convert the U.S., the, the fleet of government-owned vehicles to EVs. So we're talking about adding 675,000 EVs to the system and now you've got to have the infrastructure in place to support that and and you know what we've seen with the, the power issues in california especially wildfires and then the the you know kind of black swan events we've seen in texas and and even to an extent in georgia you have to have flexibility and you have to have redundancy but what what's really the most important thing is to overbuild that capacity and in order to overbuild capacity you have to have somebody willing to buy it so you know we see that as we make these logical steps forward to strengthen our power grid, I mean, it's, it's, it's an antiquated system, you know, the, the centralized generation distribution and transmission is, is really problematic. And, and so 
by creating more localized and regional generation, we feel like that creates more stability and does in fact decrease that volatility. But it's important that the financial aspects are done kind of with both sides in mind. You don't want to take advantage of a community because then you end up, you know, there are petitions being circulated and people are seeing their power bills go up rather than down. Um, and, and nobody likes that. And, and, you know, for our industry, it's really important to be a good, you know, community partner because Bitcoin has historically had kind of a negative connotation for people that are a little bit uneducated about how we do what we do and, and why. And so, you know, for, from our perspective, we want to always be focused on the end result. You know, we want to maximize efficiency. We want to maximize the the workforce in the local communities and the opportunities for jobs and stabilizing the power grid because we do want to be that community partner for a long term. Yeah, I liked what you said about how it's important to overbuild production capacity for, you know, local grids. Um, do you have like favorite or like preferred energy sources that you think that, you know, the U.S. or Georgia or whoever should continue building out? And I guess, do you have like a preference on those being smaller, more local and more like micro, I guess? Uh, what, what are your thoughts there? So we're, we're a big fan. You know, it's it, unfortunately the 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 whole ESG debate has become political. And it's not about virtue signaling. It's just about doing things the right way. And, you know, the, the E there is, is the environmental. So if we can incentivize renewable energy production, then everybody's better off for it. And it's not about left or right or Republican or Democrat. It's about doing the right thing because we need more abundant, clean power. So I think everybody agrees on that. And it's not about, you know, guiding investment dollars. It's just, hey, as we continue to grow as a nation, we need that stability because we have an increased reliance on energy. So we love nuclear because nuclear is a is a is a terrific, uninterruptible, and it's a it's a non-carbon emitting load. Now the reality is there are not a lot of new nuclear power developments going on. We're starting to see more funding go towards that, but you know, 30 years ago there were a couple of of, of incidents that created a fear of nuclear power. So, you know, we've, we've gone away from that, but I, I think we, we like nuclear because it's a, it's a stable generation. It's not, it's, it's not subject to when the wind blows or when the sun is out. Um, but it is, you know, renewable by, by most definitions. Now, beyond that, we really like to work with hydropower because, you know, it, it is a little bit more predictable. So, you know, we've started discussions, um, and, you know, I won't, I'll be careful not to go into any non-public stuff, but, you know, we've started discussions working with, um, like first nations and indigenous tribes that have access to hydroelectric power, but don't have the ability to build and develop that because there isn't somebody willing to stand up and say, Hey, I'll buy that. But if it was built, it would be used and it could contribute meaningfully to the economy. So we, we really see this as a, as a terrific opportunity. Now, Beyond that, we're, you know, we're always in kind of this grow mode. We're, we're very selective about finding opportunities to grow the Clean Sparkway, um, but we're, we're investigating opportunities as we speak that, that have um, uh, access to a large amount of wind power, um, a large amount of solar. Um, and, and we see that um, congestion on the grid is a bigger issue than 
generation. So there, there are a lot, there are a lot of areas regionally that have overbuilt generation, but lack transmission. And so they curtail their production or run it to ground rather than, um, have that power not used. So we can incentivize more, um, transmission and generation by buying those loads. So I think if you were to choose a hierarchy, hierarchy of our preferences, we were really big fans of nuclear. Um, but then, you know, hydro, wind and solar kind of in that area. And, and we, you know, one quick point coming out of the energy space, building microgrids for the Marine Corps at Camp Pendleton or um, U.S. embassies around the world, we had, to use, we had to incorporate energy storage. So in the event of a disruption, you have power that you've stored that you can use later. So there are different chemistries of batteries. The, the one thing that they all have in common is that there's degradation, just like your phone. Every time you charge it, the depth of the, 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 the capacity of the battery goes down just a little bit. Pretty soon you're charging your phone every four hours instead of every 16, right? So at an industrial scale, when you start to see degradation of those batteries, you're then forced with a disposal issue and it becomes an environmental issue. And so we see Bitcoin kind of uniquely in that we, rather than buy energy storage, we can incentivize somebody to build more capacity. We can buy that extra capacity instead, instead of having them store it and then kind of be that battery in that when they need that power, we can shut down and redistribute the power elsewhere. So we see that it's a benefit environmentally from that perspective as well, in that it kind of eliminates that potential need for disposal of energy storage systems once they reach the end of their useful life. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about. Um, I want to shift the topic a little bit to Bitcoin treasury management. I know we talked a little bit about in the beginning about how CleanSpark was building out mining infrastructure when everyone was buying XPs at top dollar prices. Now you guys are buying the XPs at bottom dollar prices. Um, what is your strategy, I guess, around Bitcoin treasury management? And like, you know, you guys are converting energy into Bitcoin, but what do you do with that Bitcoin and how do you decide what you do with that Bitcoin? Um, that's, that's something we take a lot of pride in. Um, so, you know, in our space, you have Bitcoin maxis and you have every, all these different kinds of, you know, self-described, um, Bitcoiners and, and we really see ourselves as Bitcoin rationalists. And, and so, you know, a year, 15 months ago, I guess, um, Bitcoin's in the $60,000 range and everybody is hodl, hodl, hodl and take on debt. We decided, you know, if you look historically, it, it doesn't always just go up in spite of what every, every Bitcoin bull would, would want to believe it, it doesn't. And so as a publicly traded company, you're forced with having to impair the assets that you hold. So if, if I mine a Bitcoin at 60,000 and the price of Bitcoin drops to 40,000, now I have to take a $20,000 hit for each one of those Bitcoin that I hold on my balance sheet. So when I report my quarterly earnings, it shows up as a loss. Now, when Bitcoin goes back up, there's no part of US generally accepted accounting principles that say, okay, you can write the value of that asset back up. It doesn't work that way. So as we started to look at this, it's like, okay, as a public company, our job is to ultimately return capital to shareholders. So we want to get efficient. We you know, want to contemplate share buybacks or dividends or whatever that looks like. But we're about to enter into a really kind of precarious period of time. So we decided to start selling our hodl. And instead of incurring debt, 
we use the sale of the Bitcoin proceeds to pay for our operating expenses. Because I mean, think about it. If, if, if you make Teslas and you feel like Teslas are undervalued, so you're going to run assembly lines and dealerships and everything else and build all these Teslas, but you're not going to sell them until the market goes up. How do you pay for all the employees and the power bill and the assembly line and everything else? So our only product is Bitcoin. We're, you know, we don't fancy ourselves as a, as a, you know, tier three data center. And we don't, we don't try and play any, you know, fast and loose games. We, we didn't get into Ethereum when everybody said, oh, you know, you should, you should buy GPUs and mine Ethereum. We wanted to be the best at what we do. And so from a standpoint of treasury management, we basically look at three levers. Okay. We have, we have the Bitcoin that we mine. We have the ability to use equity as a public company. And then we have debt. And what we looked at, and, and this is crazy because, you know, a year and a half ago at Mining Disrupt, we were meeting with lenders that were offering um, loans against mining equipment. So people had the mentality that Bitcoin was going to continue to skyrocket. It was going to go crazy. And so no price was too high to pay for capital. So we were, th we were seeing products that were double digit interest rates at 60% loan to value on mining equipment. And, and their, the, the repayment terms were amortized over like 24 months. And so you, you look at the, what the, what the requirement or the obligation to repay that debt is. And, and it was, it was really toxic. And, you know, sadly, we've seen a lot of companies in our space that, that took risks. Okay. They, they, they over leveraged or they used their Bitcoin to try and generate yield and overcommitted or, or rehypothecated those assets. So what we look at is we, we run analysis in, in real time. So we look at the price of Bitcoin, global difficulty, the cost of energy, and then we look at what our ROI is. What, what, what are we basically earning um, from a standpoint of free cash flow on that Bitcoin that we make? So we committed a year and a half ago that we're going to cover all of our operating expenses off the Bitcoin that we mine. So we're not going to we're not going to sell shares to pay employees um, or to pay our light bill. We're going to use the Bitcoin that we mine and the profit margins to pay for the operating expense. And then we're going to be selective about CapEx. So buying new equipment or buying new facilities and transformers and switch gear and, you know, infrastructure and, and hardware and, you know, even Ethernet cables. You gotta, you, you kind of look at the 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 way to manage the capital the best, and so we're going to use Bitcoin when it makes sense. We're going to use equity if and when it generates free cash flow, free cash flow, and it becomes accretive. So the the value of what we buy is greater than the dilution impact to the shareholders. That kind of the definition of accretive. So it we we measure things that if we're going to use equity. So if we're going to sell shares, it has to be accretive to our shareholders within two fiscal quarters. I mean, that's kind of our measuring stick. And, and we've really avoided debt. So, you know, we, we have, as of our last filing, um, $487 million in assets. Um, and we have about $20 million in debt. And that's an asset-backed loan from a company called Trinity Capital. They're a great partner. Um, it's like 9.9% .9 interest. And it's secured by, you know, a couple thousand Bitcoin mining rigs at our at our college park facility. So it's a reasonable instrument. And so that's that's kind of the metric. And I, I hope it's not too vague, but I can tell you that the decision of 
what we're going to use and when is made in real time based on all of those variables, contemplating what's the best for our shareholders, which includes all of us and every single person that works for us. Foundation is one of my favorite Bitcoin companies. Their product, Passport, is one of the best Bitcoin hardware wallets on the market. It is air-gapped and highly secure. I strongly encourage you to go to foundationdevices.com and use the code BLOCKWARE and get $10 off your passport. It's a great way to easily and securely store the private keys to your Bitcoin. Very cool. Do you think Bitcoin and, you know, extreme amounts of leverage or at least high debt levels are like fairly incompatible with Bitcoin's volatility? Like it seems like that's kind of what's happened, you know, over the past 15 months, like you said. But if we go into another bull market, do you think, you know, companies, whether public and private, will they follow the same playbook and leverage up to the hills again? Or do you think more people will have learned their lesson to maybe be more conservative uh, just due to the nature of Bitcoin's crazy volatility? I I think a little bit of both. Um, I think you're going to see lenders that kind of have become allergic to repossessing equipment and they don't want to play that game anymore. Um, And and I think that recency, you know, kind of a recency bias, everybody, you back up to when Bitcoin was in that $15,000, $16,000 range, everybody's like, I want nothing to do with the debt. And, you know, everybody's afraid of the industry. And now here we are in the 20s again, and people are starting to explore debt and and want to get a little bit more um, aggressive. I, I think that there's definitely an incompatibility with some of the leverage that is used in our space. Um, it's not like any other industry. If we were if we were running a traditional data center and we wanted to order new servers, you, you put a you know reasonable deposit and with an expectation that you pay the balance on delivery. On Bitcoin mining rigs, you know you look at the XPs. Those were those were released in November, October, November of 22, and they only started shipping nine months later. But people had to pay 60 to 75 percent deposits in advance. So now you're borrowing capital or you're diluting shareholders and you're paying interest or suffering the impact of the dilution for two or three fiscal quarters before you can even plug in the rigs and start to generate a return. So we, we try and be really balanced in our approach. We, we've turned down more opportunities to buy facilities and more opportunities for debt than we've accepted. And it's not even close because we, we feel like growth for the purpose of growth is kind of the bane of the existence of the industry. And, you know, what happens is people get aggressive. They, 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 they seek greater yields. They make commitments thinking that power is always going to stay low and Bitcoin's always going to stay high. And then you have these big flame out bankruptcies and, and you get everybody on Capitol Hill sitting back saying, yep, told you so. See, that's that it's because it's a Ponzi scheme without the fundamental understanding of what we're doing. And it's not, it's not Bitcoin. You know, there's, Bitcoin didn't do any of this. You know, this this is a matter of decisions that were made based on a snapshot in time of what the market looks like without understanding the volatility of every single other input in the equation. So, you know, absolutely we'll consider debt, but it has to be the right debt um, that that isn't going to put our shareholders at risk. And, you know, Joe, you know this, we're, what, 12, 14 months away from having and, and there are not a lot of companies that are building today 
with the the kind of underlying model of what it looks like post having as the you know kind of the first determining factor people are more concerned with what's my ROI next month and so we're we're trying to build for the long haul so you know when we when we look at like the first subject we talked about with machines and efficiency and power we're we're trying to build that stability and that foundation. So when having occurs, and you know it's it's inevitable, it will. Um, our expectation, I think, is that there are going to be a lot of companies that didn't prepare for winter, right? And just like what we're seeing in this you know this crypto winter we're currently experiencing, there are a lot of companies that are walking away from debt and going bankrupt and going out of business and. You know, how many Bitcoin companies are now in AI or whatever the case may be, just because it's, you know, we're trying to grab the headline to keep our investors interested. And, and we think that consistency is really going to be the, the, the winner here. And so we want to balance that approach. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I think, like you said, due to Bitcoin's extreme volatility, it makes sense to have a conservative mindset and be able to survive the bear markets because they seem to inevitably come but that enables you to capitalize on the next bull market. Um, so I think that was very well said. Do you buy into the argument? I know you're talking about the 2024 halving coming up. You know, there's some debate, I guess, in the Bitcoin community. Are, are halvings priced in? Are they bullish catalysts? Where do you stand on, on halvings and price movements about with Bitcoin, you know, over the next 12 to 18 months after the halving? Well, you know, we... If we weren't bullish on Bitcoin, we would be in this space. And I think the underlying driver for most everyone in the space is the fact that the commodity and the algorithm is driven by scarcity. So there, there are only going to be a finite number of Bitcoin. And when they're done, they're done. And so as we continue to see an increase in regulation, what that does is that, that creates stability. It, it decreases the exposure to the bad actors in the space. Um, regulation is a good thing. Um, so what we, we ultimately believe, you know, Econ 101, day one of class supply and demand. And, and, and we don't see that, you know, with the increase in adoption and acceptance for Bitcoin, that demand is going to wane. We, you know, we, we see these events that create a little bit of fear, but you know, like Warren Buffett said, the money is made, you know, when, when everybody else is fearful, you need to be bold. And, and so, you know, we see the kind of opportunities that come as a result of fear to continue to get stronger. Um, we, you know, with, with the scarcity of the algorithm, we absolutely do believe that it'll have a positive impact on the price of Bitcoin. Um, and as adoption continues, it's going to drive that demand. So if you look back through history at every halving cycle, it, it generally is always followed by, you know, a pretty strong bullish cycle. And we, you know, we, we're, we're positioning ourselves accordingly. You know, we, it, it's funny, Joe, you know, a year ago, People were running models saying, well, I think we can all agree that Bitcoin's never going to go below $40,000. So this is kind of our thesis. And, you know, we, we had a more, like I said, a Bitcoin rationalist movement for us. And it's like, yeah, but what if it does? You know, how are we best positioned to survive? And 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 so by by negotiating the agreements that we have on equipment and 
by taking the approach that we've done, we, we think that we balance that and we're prepared for that next cycle that we believe will be, will really be driven by that having event. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious to, to hear what you think on this or what you you can say. Um, I, I asked Michael Saylor a similar question about how MicroStrategy custodies their Bitcoin or uses a qualified custodian. I guess, does CleanSpark also use like a qualified custodian? And is there ever maybe any intention for CleanSpark to somehow hold their own private keys to their Bitcoin treasury? Yeah, so the answer is yes on both accounts. Um, you know, there are a number of companies that offer yields on your Bitcoin deposits. And what we've seen is that, you know, part of those deposit agreements enabled them to rehypothecate, right? So, you know, uh, companies, even mining companies that had exposure to FTX, I think were unclear that um, they, they basically committed to allow FTX to rehypothecate the Bitcoin and instead um, secure that with the FTT token. And, you know, I was joking that it's kind of like the briefcase full of IOUs on the Dumb and Dumber movie. That, that's kind of the FTT token. And it's as good as cash, I promise. And, and that's, that's kind of sadly the approach that a number of, a number of people were kind of exposed to. And it's, it's unfortunate. It was a black eye for our industry. But, but we, so from a standpoint of custodians, um, we, we use Coinbase um, as a publicly traded company. You know, I know Binance is, is the biggest. But as a U.S. publicly traded company, the, the accounting and audit tests are much greater than I think anybody else at scale. And because we don't have a massive HODL balance, it's less of a concern for us. But certainly we do have um, cold storage and, and have the flexibility and the ability to, to hold our own keys. You know, we have, we have our mining pool relationship with Foundry and it's been terrific. Um, we've, we've used Coinbase for custody and have had zero, is, zero risk or zero issues. You know, sometimes dealing with Coinbase is a pain in the butt because we want to do a transfer. We've got to have three of us on camera and, you know, a blood sample and mother's maiden name and all that at once. So, you know, I appreciate that kind of security and redundancy um, it, more so than, than, than I don't like the inconvenience, but, but yeah, certainly, you know, cold storage and, and, and holding our own keys will be, um, a, a large part going forward as we start to, to pivot from using more of our Bitcoin into increasing our HODL on a, on a more large scale basis. You know, we're at 22 Bitcoin a day. That's, that's not nothing. I mean, that's a significant amount of, of generation. And so it's given us flexibility to, you know, to convert that to USD and then use that to buy more machines and buy more equipment and, and to grow more production in, produ in, in preparation for having. So, so yeah, I think, I think the answer to both, um, you know, that yes, we, we, we have a good custody relationship and yes, we expect to um, continue to use cold storage as our HODL builds. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I wish I was mining 22 Bitcoin a day. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know we've got, we've been going for a little bit. I've got maybe two more questions. Uh, I want to learn more about you, I guess. What was your background before Bitcoin and, and mining Bitcoin with, with CleanSpark? So I, you know, my, my career has always been in the energy space. And interestingly, it's been, um, I, I spent a deal, a, a good deal of the, of my career in the non-renewable energy space, creating financial instruments surrounding oil and gas development to incentivize domestic production. 
Um, part of that process, um, I got exposed to what they call increased density. So when you drill an oil well or a gas well, you can only have one well every so many acres, depending on whether you're in Texas or Oklahoma or uh, New Mexico. And, and so then they, they run analysis, right? It's called porosity and permeability. So how, how, how easy is it for the oil to flow through the formation? Um, and, and how far does one well drain? And you, so you do these porosity and permeability studies, and then you can petition to increase the density. So you got a producing well here and a producing well here, and you can determine that the drainage radius is here. And so you can, you can use science to say, well, if I drill a, a well in the middle, it's likely that I'm going to drill into a producing formation. And it's also unlikely that I'm going to impact the production of the other wells. Um, and we focused on domestic production to decrease our reliability on purchasing oil from nations that probably don't particularly care for us. So part of that process, you know, as a father of six, what I saw is that, you know, 70, 80, 90 years ago, when oil and gas were produced, it, it always comes out of the formation with water. And that water is many times the salinity of seawater. So it becomes an environmental issue. And so it has to be properly hauled and disposed of. And the disposal process consists of hauling it away and then injecting it down wells that are no longer productive. But before that, they used to flood the water out on the, onto the, the, just out onto the plain and allow the water to evaporate, thinking that you know, the salt wouldn't evaporate and it'll all be fine. And what that created was these salt scalds. And, and it's literally areas, thousands of acres that not even a blade of grass will grow today. And so, you know, we bought a, we bought a prospect in Young County, Texas, and there was an 80 foot tall tree and it was laying down with the entire root structure intact because there's no micro vegetation to bind the soil. So there's nothing to keep the soils from blowing away or to keep the tree alive. And so, you know, as a, as a dad, it was one of those things. It's like, man, we're really doing a crappy job taking care of our planet. And, and, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, be the oil guy that's also an environmentalist, but, you know, as a father, you kind of have to have that concern. And so we had on our, on our hauling trucks, we had a, a decal and it said, we didn't inherit the planet from our parents. We borrowed it from our kids. And so we started to look into how can we be more responsible with energy generation? And so that's kind of what led to Clean Spark and Clean Spark's predecessor company. And that's how I got connected with Zach our current CEO was to build something that made a difference and to create sustainability. And what we found is that you've got the Siemens and Schlumberger and all the, the general electrics with the unlimited budgets that, that really kind of control the hardware side of that equation. So we focused more on software and efficiency. And what we found is that without a stable load, somebody willing to stand up and say, Hey, I'll buy that power. It's a really tough business. And that's really kind of what led us here, you know, being in South Africa thinking, man, we can impact the lives of thousands and thousands of people. If somebody would just make a loan to build a microgrid. And, and so if you have a Bitcoin company in South Africa, I mean, we're not geographically restricted. As long as you have communications, you can, you can generate power on site. So you know, it was one of those things, you know, that it's just kind of the next logical transition of my career. And that is, how do we do this better? How, how do we make a positive impact rather than be the guy that, you know, 
took advantage of investors and depositors and, and defrauded people for short-term gains. How do we build a company that matters and how do we make a difference? How does our ripple effect change the lives of the people that we work with? And, you know, I would encourage you being in Georgia, go down and meet with the guys in, in Washington. I mean, you got a, you got a town of, you know, four or 5,000 people. Um, it, it, you know, it's a beautiful little community. Zach is, I, I talked to him before you and I spoke, he's at lunch with the mayor and the city council. You know, they love having clean spark there because, we employ so many people and we pay above average wage. You know, we're, we're, our location is, is not near anything. It's not a noise issue. You know, in Norcross, meeting with the mayor there in Norcross, we have immersion. Nobody even knew we were mining Bitcoin there because you can drive by and not hear a thing. So, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, knowing your environment, knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, you know, really for me, it's a passion. I just, I'm, I'm super grateful for the opportunity and I think... I think this this next level of decentralized finance is is kind of the future, and you know, I'm, 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 it gives me a lot of hope for my kids. Awesome, yeah, that's a great story. I think I was looking up before this that you guys now have more ASICs in Washington, Georgia, than there are people in Washington, Georgia. So, pretty cool. I, I, I want to tell you a funny story, okay? Yeah. So we. Um, we published a press release saying that we're broke ground, broke ground on 50 megawatts of new power in Washington. So it's MEAG's already building the substation. We have the power. We're building the, 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 the buildings that match what we already have there. It's one of our most efficient, 99.8% uptime this month. So those guys are just killing it. So we put out a press release. We had a quote from our, you know, guys on our side, guys on the, on the local side. And the city of Washington posted it on their Facebook page. And, and what you know, they said, hey, we're excited. CleanSpark's adding 50 megawatts to their facility in Washington. They're going to bring in 16,000 more miners. And, you know, some sweet person in, in, in Washington, Georgia said, well, we only have two hotels and three restaurants. Where are they all going to eat? So it's, it's just kind of a cool, yeah, you know what? We have way more ASICs than, than residents. In fact, um, the entire load for the city when we went, went b before Bitcoin, the, the entire utility load for Washington, Georgia was seven megawatts, seven or eight megawatts. Um, our facility right now has 36 megawatts active and we're adding 50. So that one little campus will be 10 times the entire load of the city. Um, and the reason that matters, because the city of Washington is our utility. And they buy from MEAG and they make a fraction of a penny with every kilowatt we buy. So think about how that impacts parks and roads and recreation and all that fun stuff. So plus think of it like Costco. They're buying energy in bulk. So it has a positive impact on the rates that the utility or the utility rates that the other residents of the community pay. So we 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 love the you know, Washington is just a gem. It's a great place. Sandersville, same thing. You know, the people in Norcross, we, we just we're in love with Georgia. Nice. Yeah, that's a hilarious and, and awesome story. <laughs> um, last question, then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, and we've kind of talked a little bit about this already, but. What is your long-term perspective on Bitcoin? I know some people view it as, hey, Bitcoin is this digital gold. It's going to be, you know, maybe worth $10 trillion one day. Some people say, hey, it's like a, maybe Sailor looks at it like this. It's a treasury reserve asset. You should hold it um, instead of maybe other assets. And then the last one is like, hey, Bitcoin is like global money. Where do you fit along the lines? Or do you think, hey, let's take it one step at a time? Um, so... You know, I don't mean to be ambiguous, but I think my answer would be all of the above. You know, having having visited a country 
that the currency is worth nothing and seeing the impact that that has on the people there, the realization that if I have a data connection and, and a device, I have access to global financial networks, um, that's a big deal. Um, I, I would say as a hedge against inflation, I mean, obviously the last year is kind of a black swan, so that doesn't necessarily um, prove out. But when you, when you look at the scarcity built into the algorithm, I think that it's undeniable as adoption continues to grow that it becomes a reserve asset. Um, but also, you know, the, the, I, I, I'd say one more layer, and that is the fuel to, to power the, the new energy generation. You know, that, that transition from coal-fired power plants every, you know, every other state and, and then the massive transmission lines. And, you know, you hear about clusters of, of terrible illnesses that are surrounded by these mega substations and generation facilities and the wastewater and, you know, the wildfires that we've seen that have impacted people in California. We really see that, you know, Bitcoin, aside from all of the other components and aspects that you and I have discussed, is that it's a tool to drive that energy transition to create that stability. So beyond just the financial impact of the underlying commodity, that it really does make an impact on the, the quality of life globally. Awesome. I think that's a great spot to, to end it. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for coming on. I think the audience is going to love this, learning a lot more about you and CleanSpark. Uh, any final words? Where can the audience you know, find you or, or, or learn more about CleanSpark? Um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to be here. It's great to meet you and get get to have a chance to chat through this. Um, I, I, I love the work that you do, and I listen all the time to to uh, your podcast. Um, you know, obviously, cleanspark.com is our website. Um, my, uh, my Twitter, I try and update a lot of pictures and different stuff that we're doing that's fun. It's just S. Matthew Schultz. Um, but, you know, again... We, we love to have engagement with the, the people that have entrusted us with their investment dollars and the people that are interested in maybe learning more about it. So um, if you go to cleanspark.com, there's all kinds of education about what Bitcoin is and what it does and, and why we do what we do. And, you know, not just the how and what and where, but but the why behind it. So um, would encourage anybody that's interested to reach out. We have a great communications team and they're happy to answer any questions you might have. Awesome. Yeah, everybody go follow Matt and CleanSpark on Twitter and check out their website. But uh, this is awesome, Matt. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, Joe. Have a great day.